Father, tonight we will open again the book of Acts. We will study and, and learn as best we can, but we do appeal to the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and to open our hearts, speaking to each of us, Father, in the way that He alone knows best and that the words I would use, Father, would be useful to Him in that endeavor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we didn't quite finish chapter 2. I left off a small section at the end of that chapter for tonight. And that end of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 are closely connected. So we're going to study them as one piece. Last week, to set the scene for you, we were at the uh, point in Acts 2 where the hubbub was taking place in the streets of Jerusalem. We were watching... The reaction of the crowd after you've seen the Spirit descend upon the early believers in the church. Peter then turned and preached to this multitude of some 3,000 Jews who were baptized and believed that day. And as Jews, they also became part of the believing remnant of the nation of Israel. That was what we talked about at the end of last week. That's the same remnant that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11, verses 5 through 7, which you can go back and look at at some point on your own if you'd like. But uh, these... Early believers in the church were Jewish, and as Jewish believers, they became the remnant within the nation of Israel in their day. And then at the end of that scene, we find a summary statement. And this summary statement is of what follows for this group, for these 3,000 and beyond. Acts 2.42. This is where we start tonight. Luke says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So those who came from the moment of Pentecost, Luke says, were continuously devoted to two activities. And then as well, they were engaged in two lesser activities, two other activities, Luke says. And the Greek in the language here in the in the sentence makes that distinction. The word for continuously devoted, proskartereo, it means literally adopting a lifestyle. They adopted as a lifestyle. You can see this same word as an example used later in the book of Acts in a different context, and it will help you understand the way that word is intended. Acts chapter 10, verse 7. This word is used here where the sentence goes, When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. Personal attendants is the same Greek word. People who in a vocational sense, were dedicated to something. So going back to Acts 2.42, these people, these early believers, were continually devoted or they were vocationally devoted or in a lifestyle sense, they had turned their lives in a new direction toward these efforts. Primarily of two activities, learning the apostles' teaching and spending time together in fellowship. The grammar in that Greek sentence makes it clear that the latter two activities, the Lord's Supper, and prayer were conducted, but somewhat less frequently, or another way to say it would be without it requiring a change in their lifestyle. For example, they're not conducting the Lord's Supper three or four times a day. That's not the way we would expect it to be done. And similarly, believers in that early church who were Jewish would have already had well-established patterns for where prayer was done in the context of a normal weekly calendar certain expected times for prayer. And they probably just continued in those expected patterns and made use of them for their own prayers in the new faith. So that didn't dramatically change their lifestyle. But those first two events were a departure from what they had done before. 
Now, someone might have looked at this scene in, in the end of chapter two and seen all that happened with Pentecost and with the miracles and so on. And you might have dismissed it as an emotional response. Something that happened in the moment after a good preaching, people got excited, they got all heated and they decided to respond. And in fact, you can see the same thing happening today at times. You see people who make a profession of faith in some form or fashion, sometimes as a result of a very strong emotional appeal from the pulpit or in some other context. But in a relatively short period of time, they leave all that behind. They make a profession. They start something with a lot of gusto. And then before you know it, they're not there anymore. This is the condition that Jesus describes in the parable of the sower and the seed in Luke chapter eight, when he talks about that initial burst but then it withers and dies. That's the second condition of the four. So there's no life. There's no lasting life. It was all an emotional response. In reality, strong emotional responses are not accurate measures of truth. People often will experience strong emotions in response to a message or some event, but as sincere as those responses can be at times, you can be sincerely wrong. And you can change your mind about many of those things later. Luke gives us here evidence that the huge response on Pentecost was not one of those emotional, transient moments. It was not a flash in the pan because 3000 people came to faith on the first day of the church. And that newfound faith was followed by a complete change in their personal lifestyle, which held. And that bond of the spirit, which drew them together initially, was also the means to hold them together and to change them in these ways. They begin to think differently. They begin to live differently, fundamentally differently, in fact. And they did so as a result of the indwelling of the Spirit. People often look at Acts 2.42 as a model. You'll hear that verse, in fact, taken and used as a almost iconic symbol of the church. We have an Acts 2.42 church, or we have an Acts 2.42 small group. You'll hear that kind of thing said from time to time. And what they're saying is, we practice these four things, or we have returned to the roots of what the church used to be, or something in that, in that way. There is some validity to the fact that these activities have merit and should be continuing in the church. But we have to stop and ask ourselves, what came first, the chicken or the egg, in the case of these changes? These people were fundamentally different. They lived differently as a result of their faith. They have a changed view of Jesus They know him now to be the Messiah. That changed view brought salvation and with it the spirit. It produced, therefore, a change in their view about the world and about each other in the church, which then, of course, led them to think and act differently toward one another and to think and act differently in their own walk. So there was a series of events that began with a changed understanding of Christ and led through a whole chain of events until they were living a different life fundamentally with one another and as an individual. I think it's ironic that many have turned Acts 2.42 into a recipe for how to establish a healthy church environment when, if you look at it carefully, it's actually speaking about individual devotions in the lives of individuals, not corporate changes. Remember, the book of Acts was not intended as a manual for how to conduct or found a church. We aren't supposed to mimic the first century experience as if the first century experience is of greater validity than any other experience or later experience in the church. What we're supposed to do is not mimic anything. We're supposed to follow the spirit. Secondly, and more importantly, those activities that were in that list are good and they're necessary disciplines of faithful believers, but they do not in and of themselves create faithful believers. 
I cannot work the process backwards. When I have faithful believers, I will see these disciplines. But if I institute these disciplines, I do not automatically create faithful believers with them. Believers, in this case, in the early church, they were the ones who were continually devoted to these activities as a new vocation or a new lifestyle. And they were outward signs of a new heart, of a new spirit. Those things did not produce the new heart or the new spirit. They are the result of the new heart and the new spirit. So it must be the case that an individual makes a decision of their own to live a life consistent with their faith and then become devoted to these disciplines as a matter of of a new lifestyle if we're going to see it materialize in the church. Ultimately, it has to be that I have a room full of spirit-led, spirit-following believers who have leadership that model the same thing. In this case, there was a lot of enthusiasm and excitement in that early church, and it manifested in these four behaviors becoming aspects of their lifestyle. So the issue is one of who do they know, how have they been changed, and then the result is how do I channel that? In this case, the work of the Spirit channeled them to do these four things. Acts 42:43 goes on. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continually, with one mind in the temple, and, I'm sorry, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then Luke ends chapter 2 here with this snapshot of the life of the early church. He says, number one, there was this feeling of awe. Actually, the word in Greek is phobos. It means dread or fear. So they're watching the apostles perform the kinds of miracles that were uniquely limited to the apostolic gift. And as a result, there was a fear and awe, respectful fear in the people. Now, you're going to hear this throughout Acts. You're going to see apostolic miracles. Jesus-like miracles, raising people from the dead, healing people from illness, casting out demons, and so on. You're going to see this from time to time in the book of Acts. You'll notice something, though, if you study it carefully. First, all of these powers reside in the twelve apostles and any of their surrogates. A surrogate was someone who had hands laid upon them by an apostle, but they themselves could not transfer that to somebody else. It wasn't like a pyramid scheme where they could just keep moving it down the the line. The limitation of the gift, the apostolic gift, was that those who had been given that gift had the power to do these kinds of miracles, and they could, as they desired, transfer that power to a surrogate, to someone else that they commissioned. But that's where it would end. And so as the last apostle died, these gifts died as well. The opportunity to see these kinds of miracles taking place through a consistent spiritual gifting, no longer exists in the church. Now, I am not precluding the possibility that on an occasion, God may choose to perform a healing through somebody or that he may perform a a, a casting out a demon, for example. What we're talking here about someone who has a spiritual gift to do this routinely as their gift, just as we each have a gift to do something else routinely, the idea that you could perform these kinds of miracles routinely was limited to the apostles. It's part of what the apostolic gift entails. So here you see the apostles performing these uh, miracles and producing awe. 
And then we hear some interesting style of living for the early church. And again, here's where people will begin to wonder how much of this is prescriptive versus simply descriptive. For example, they're living closely together, communal living, truly sharing all that they have and helping the needy among themselves. This is uh, truly a communal style of living arrangement where people viewed everyone's possessions, at least to some degree, as a communal possession. Why would we see this going on in the early church? Well, first thing to note is it's unique, not just for us. It was unique in that day, too. This is not normal Jewish living, not normal Jewish lifestyle. It doesn't appear to exist outside of Jerusalem. There's no evidence in the book of Acts or any of the New Testament epistles of this same style of living being repeated anywhere else. In fact, by Acts chapter 5, I think, it's totally disappeared from the record of Acts as well. It seems to have been an early uh, experience in the Jerusalem church only, which makes some sense because communal living as a rule within the fellowship of believers is not common. It's not been common at any point in history since this early day. What would have explained it then in this early day? The answer I arrive at was the way Paul describes the church later. He describes them as being a a, a fairly poor church. In fact, he's often talking to other Greek churches about the need to support the Jerusalem church because they are so poor. And so if it was a poor church, knowing that it, it depended on gifts from wealthier Greek churches in later days, then it would make sense that the early poor believers in Jerusalem would have seen good reason, economic reason, to adopt a communal lifestyle just to help with their individual needs, knowing that many who were coming in were not with anything to bring of their own anyway. They were beggars in many cases. But there's always been communities of believers who held closely together. You still see that today even. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, I think that's probably what you should expect, small collections of believers who get to know each other and support each other. And that's what we are, are called to do particularly in the book of James, as an example. But there is, I think, a forced interest in this. Some take this to be prescriptive, yet again. And in that prescription, they begin taking a position against individual or personal wealth, personal ownership of anything. They tend to make the economics of it preeminent, more so than simply acknowledging that in this day and in this time there was obviously some benefit in in doing this for these people. But it's tangential to the issue of faith and religion in general. There's nothing good or bad about what they're doing here. It just has no relationship to the faith that they had. It was just the way they chose to express it in their day. What's interesting to me, as I said earlier, is how many people will take this just without any thought given to why it was happening and look at it as a recipe for how they're to live as their own church. And you can do this throughout the book of Acts, right? You can go off in all kinds of strange corners based on what you find happening in this book if you take it too prescriptively. If we're to say that the first century church had it right and we're wrong, then how far do you take that thinking? For example, these early Christians, they all spoke Hebrew. These early Christians wore tunics and sandals. They all bathed about once a month. How much of that is what we have to do as well? At what point do we start to turn what is simply descriptive about them and turn it into something that was never intended to be? I think we do that as soon as we move off the spiritual and we move into the uh, temporal and we make one a substitute for the other. We can say it's good to be studying and praying and sharing the Lord's Supper and so on. But those are behaviors that come out of a a spirit driven faith 
they can't substitute for spirit-driven faith, and nor do they ensure a spirit-driven faith. So you have to be careful about taking the activities that come from faith and turn them into the substance of faith. In this case, these are the kinds of activities the Spirit apparently engendered in them as a part of that early church. Here's what I would say the useful comparisons are from the first century church to where we are today. In the case of the individual, the question would be, am I continually devoted to receiving God's word as these people were? Am I continually devoted to spending time in fellowship with others in the church? Making that a priority, in other words, giving selflessly to my of, up of my own interest and time to be with someone else just for the sake of being in the fellowship of other believers. Am I participating in communion as a regular practice? And am I in prayer as a, as a regular practice? I mean, if, you, if, if individually everyone in the church could answer those affirmatively, you have an Acts 2.42 church without even planning it. It's about an individual personal discipline. Of the four things that are listed in that list, number one is devoted to teaching. Second thing on the list, though, is fellowship. What's interesting to me about that one is we would probably run to thinking, certainly not our weakest point. But in, in honesty, I think it is. Because the way fellowship is viewed today is an opportunity for me to get together with other people and enjoy myself. But I don't think that's the intent of what fellowship means biblically. Biblically, fellowship is about a selflessness of giving time to the needs of others in a corporate setting. So on the nights when it's not convenient to leave your house or on the Sundays when you would rather not go to church, you put yourself in a position to be there because you know your presence is a benefit for someone else. That's fellowship. That's a focus on fellowship that is almost completely lacking in my experience. In fact, it's natural in the Western church particularly that fellowship is a when it's good for me kind of experience because it's seen as such. It's seen as a benefit. I'm supposed to be there when it's good for me and I don't need to be there if it's not, rather than as a kind of service to the body to be participating in things. And a selflessness around fellowship is, is probably it's the thing that you see the least of in churches today. And yet it's one we don't give any real concern over. We don't feel like that's a problem. We know when we aren't praying, we know when we're not studying the Bible, what we don't realize is how often we are shirking an opportunity to support others in fellowship. I see that as, again, how individually we get an Acts 2.42 church. So anyway, moving on. As a result of all this dedication and this, this new lifestyle, they are gaining favor with the Lord himself. And we see that because as they praise his name, he's adding to their numbers in a regular fashion. Then secondly, and more interesting to me, is they gain favor with the people. It says in the city of Jerusalem, as they go into the temple and they practice their faith, among many other Jews, of course, who were going to be in the temple, the Jewish people of the city, these, these normal inhabitants of the city, view these early believers in this new faith favorably for some reason. Probably because of their piety and their sincerity. Not necessarily because of their views. So the normal Jew, especially one who was in the temple in Jerusalem, of all places, would have been encouraged to see other people practicing any faith, for that matter, in a sincere, pious fashion. That, that was approved upon or looked upon with approving eyes in the Jewish culture. So the, the simple devotion to their faith is probably gaining them some favor. And at this early stage, there's probably not a lot of concern over them. They're not seen necessarily as a threat, not at least to the general population. And so there's room for them. But it's only the beginning. And in chapter 3, he sets up an interesting moment in the temple followed by chapter 4, which is a confrontation with the Pharisees over that moment. So chapter 3, we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 10 as an opening to this chapter. 
Verse one. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Sounds very familiar in light of what you see Jesus doing, right? It's a very similar pattern, except that in this case they... They speak differently to the man before they heal him. And this whole scene, in fact, chapters three and four together form one day out of a course of time when Luke has said at the end of two, they would go daily into the temple. This is one of those days. So at some point, not long after the the church has been formed, they're on their daily trek into the temple. Now, the temple, if you remember the compound from perhaps studies we've done in here before, just to remind you briefly, it's a huge structure. The outermost section is the court of the Gentiles, big open area that anyone could go in. There was an inner area that formed the temple grounds itself. That was the court of the women. Court of the women was a place that only Jews could go. So you stopped at the door if you were a Gentile. Inside that, you had another wall separating the court of the women from the temple itself, the holy place. And then inside the holy place, you had the holy of holies, only Jewish priests could go into the holy place and you know on from there so this is the gate one of the gates that separates the court of the gentiles from the court of the women this is a gate that only jews could pass through but everyone had to pass through these gates to get into the temple grounds itself which is where you went as a jew in order to participate in worship this guy for the better part of 40 years he's been taken by his mom since birth because he was born this way And laid at the gate, the beautiful gate, which is one of the gates that leads between these two courts. The idea being simple. He's sitting there as a good opportunity, a lot of traffic going by. He can beg all day long for for alms. And what an alm was is a payment made from one believer to another as an act of piety to gain favor with God. So it's like a donation of sorts, but by paying it to the individual, it's an act of mercy to them. And you're doing it to gain favor with God. So he would sit there. And just with probably his head down, not even looking at people after you're there for hours and hours on end. You're not looking at each person going by. You're just staring down at the ground and you're just saying alms, 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 right? Waiting for someone to take notice of you. So he's in this state. Peter walks by. Here's the man like anyone else would have. But Peter stops with John, we're told. They look at the man and they call upon him to look at them. That's an indication that this guy wasn't looking up initially. Now, he looks up, we're told, because... First of all, this never happens, right? The only time anybody ever would stop to acknowledge him was in connection with giving something to him. So his assumption is, if you stop to talk to me, you're about to give me something. So he looks up, and eagerly so, because probably the insistence in Peter's voice suggested something big was about to happen. So the sense of the language is, this guy looked up really eagerly, had Peter's attention, and was curious of what was coming next. It's interesting to note, to me anyway, that 
though Peter and the rest of the church we've already heard, they had possessions. They pooled their possessions. They were sharing their possessions. They may not have had much, but they had some things, clearly. It's interesting to me that Peter makes absolutely no effort here to give this man any charity whatsoever. He says, I have no silver and gold, which is a way of saying I'm not rich. But that doesn't mean Peter couldn't have given him a coin. It's interesting that meeting his physical or his felt needs, which we would say today, was not his first concern. In fact, it doesn't appear to be his concern at all. Meeting physical or felt needs among unbelievers is not the ultimate aim of Christianity. Nor, by the way, is it the best expression of the gospel. You'll see this quite often when you go overseas in third world countries. As as an outsider, as a Westerner showing up for a short period of time in a third world country, presumably to help with mission work in some fashion, don't spoil it for yourself and everyone else by starting to just open your pockets to people because that feeds the perception that has been there already for too long, which is Westerners come to give you things. They've been conditioned to think that's what Christianity is about. It's about giving me things to meet my felt needs. And these rich people from the other side of the world come and that's all they seem to want to do. Meanwhile, the ones who are living there trying to perform true ministry with the message of the gospel find that their opportunity to speak the truth and have it heard is undermined by a culture that thinks, okay, get on with the message, but when are you going to give me those sneakers I'm wanting? They're always looking past the message to the felt need. James instructs us in his letter that we are to be generous with our giving in support of felt needs, but to who? To believers. Within the believing camp, we are to be generous. To the unbelieving camp, we are to be focused on the message of the gospel. That is not to say that we are precluded from giving to the unbelieving world. It is to say, though, that that is not our mission. We were not saved and then commissioned with the Great Commission so as to go out and feed people. We were commissioned to bring them the bread of life. And then in the course of that, perhaps there may be opportunities to provide for their physical need here and then. But that is not the main goal. If it becomes a big part of our work, it will overshadow the message of the gospel. It will become their chief interest. No different than in John chapter 6, when Jesus has fed the 5,000 with the fishes and loaves. And as he finishes that and gets on the boat and goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, this crowd follows him around by foot. And when he sees him, he says, you didn't come after me because you knew I'm the Messiah. You came after me because I fed you bread, didn't you? And that's exactly what they said. Yes, we came for more bread. That's the danger in meeting felt needs. All they'll come for is the bread. Sometimes our own best intentions work against our own best interests because we end up deadening their ears while we fill their stomach. In Peter's case, he says, I don't have much money, but I have apostolic authority and that I can give you something with or I can make it useful to you. So I'm going to grant you a miracle. And Peter commands the guy to walk and he does so in a very unique way or in a very specific way, I guess I should say. He says, in the name of Jesus, Jesus the Nazarene, I command you to walk. When you invoke the name of someone in that culture, it's similar today in that I might say I have a power of attorney. I invoke the authority of the person when I invoke their name. But can I walk around, for example, today with a power of attorney for someone else like Brian? I take Brian's name and I write it on a piece of paper and I say, here's Brian's power of attorney granting me power to do whatever I want in his name. No, I can't. The document is meaningless unless it truly came from him. Unless it was his authority granted to me. I can't assume it for myself. Similarly, the apostles could not assume the authority to heal this man 
even with their apostolic gifting, had it not been God's will to heal him. Because at the end of the day, who healed the man? It had to be God through the name of Jesus. It was not Peter who, in his own will or in his own power, accomplished anything. In fact, he will make that very claim himself here in a minute to the crowd when they start uh, assuming it was him that did it. So the apostolic gift included the ability to perform such miracles, but they only worked, so to speak, when they were performed in accordance with the will and direction of Jesus Christ. Now, how Peter would have known God's will in that moment, it's the same as it would be for you and I when we perform in our gifting according to God's will. There are going to be days we're operating in the full force of that gift, and then there's days we may just be going through the motion. But in any case, when there's an effect out of our work, it's going to be credited to the work of the Spirit, not to us. And I believe as Peter approached this man, he had clear understanding from the Spirit. This was a man he was supposed to heal. And so he acted upon that understanding. However, it came to him. Look what happens after the healing. The man, at first, he just sits there. Now, that makes sense. He's never walked. How would he even know where to start? He just sits there after he hears these words. But Peter, it says, reaches down, lifts him up, and immediately he's strengthened. He recognizes, hey, I can stand. And then he starts leaping. And you can only imagine what it must have been like, the joy of that moment. And he's praising God, praising God. And, of course, the response from the crowd as they see this happen is they begin praising God, marveling at the miracle and praising God. Now, before we look at what follows, I want you to give some thought here just for a moment to how this process works, because it's exactly the same for every spiritual gift, meaning the process is exactly the same. First, a work is performed by someone in the spirit and, I think importantly, for the benefit of others. There is no spiritual gift given for yourself. And therefore, there is no such thing as a spiritual gift that can be exercised in the spirit for yourself. Spiritual gifts are, by definition, given to build up the body, edify the body, strengthen the body. So you have to have communal experience. You have to be in fellowship in some fashion to use your spiritual gift. Even in prayer, because prayer requires, ultimately, an understanding of needs, of petitions, of knowing what to intercede for. So they're not for our benefit, they're for the use of the body corporately, number one. Secondly, they're made possible by God's power. And the reasoning is very simple. They have to be God's power at work through us in order for God to be glorified from them. And the whole intent is that we build up one another and we glorify God through the use of our gifts. In this case, we hear many people rightly crediting God for the miracle and praising his name. So you see the effect of it in this case. So you see both sides of it. One man being built up physically. I mean, he was put on his feet. You can't get much more built up than that. And then you have God glorified by him personally and by those who watch it. You should expect to see exactly that same pattern every time someone exercises a spiritual gift. Someone else should be built up in a meaningful way specifically. And generally, others are encouraged by it. Others glorify God over it. Finally, when that has been, that work has been done, it's inevitable that someone will credit us individually. Inevitable. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for that donation. Thank you if you have a gift to give and you're, you're a giver. Thank you for those donations. If I'm a teacher, thank you, see, for that teaching. I just love your teaching or whatever someone might be inclined to say. In that moment, it is imperative that the one with the gift redirect attention back to God for his rightful praise. In this case... You see the apostles who were the ones gifted to perform the miracle. And in the early days of the church, 
they had this power for the very reason of what you see happening here in chapter 3. Public displays of that power were essential to giving the messengers authority among the people. The message gained credibility. Ultimately, God was praised through the message and because of those powers. But here he redirects attention. Look in verse 11. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. So naturally, Peter and John get the attention, but then they redirect it. And they redirect it to Christ, to the one who is the source of the healing. But look at his second sermon. This is Peter's second sermon, if you're keeping count. Look at the structure of this one. Without going through every line of it, just look at the outline of it. First, he acknowledges that they caught their, the, the crowd's attention. He acknowledges what they're excited about. Secondly, he gives them the true source of the power. He, he tells them where they should be directing their credit to. Naming the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, this would be an uh, extra credit question for those who've been in enough of my studies. But when we say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... When a Jew would use those three names together like that, it was a code. It was shorthand. It was a way of saying the Abrahamic covenant. It was a way of reminding a Jew that they have these three patriarchs through whom came these promises, which we collectively call the Abrahamic covenant. And what was so important about mentioning the Abrahamic covenant here is it brings to mind for this Jewish audience that what they saw happen in this moment is simply a manifestation of God keeping His covenant, keeping His promise that He made to those three men. That promise is ultimately kept in Christ Himself. But this is all happening in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus. So this is a part of that covenant coming to life. And He uses the term in the text I read, the servant of God, Jesus. Remember in Isaiah's study? There's a long section in that study about the suffering servant. Peter takes the word servant, puts it in the statement that he made, because it immediately would have invoked in their minds, not just the fact that the servant was a word for Messiah, but it was connected to suffering servant, that the servant was someone who would suffer, who would die. That actually was a part of what God intended to see happen. So don't take that and hold it against Jesus that he was suffering and died. That was a part of the plan, remember? That's his way of alluding to that. And then he goes on and talks about the history of what's happened in Jerusalem over the last two months and and back to the time of the crucifixion, using a variety of names for Jesus and and of the Christ, the Holy One, Righteous One, and so on. The next thing he does is he presents the undeniable fact that Jesus was resurrected by the, uh, died, was resurrected by the Father, something he witnessed, something that he says we all witnessed. This means virtually everyone in the city must have seen this happen in the day it happened. And at the conclusion of that, lists faith as the necessary element for those who would know him to be the Messiah to receive that that covenant. So he's given the gospel message. That's about as short as you can get it. 
Jesus is God in the flesh. He died, though he had no sin. The Father raised him from the dead. Those are the essentials of the gospel message presented in that short passage. And then, fifth, Peter calls upon the crowd to respond in faith. And here's where faith becomes an interesting conversation. And in particular, because of Acts 3.16. Were you all here when I said that it's a worthy study to go back and look at 3.16 out of every book in the Bible? Here's, here's Acts 3.16. Interesting verse. He says, the lame man is walking because of faith in Jesus' name. But the Greek in verse 16 is very difficult to parse. And, and you'll see that when I show you a couple of different versions of, of English translations. It's a complicated Greek sentence. In fact, if you really go all the way back in the Greek, the sentence begins in verse 13. So verse 13 through verse 16 is actually one sentence. Making it very difficult to understand at points what he's saying. But particularly in verse 16. Here's the most literal rendering in the English. If you just made it a kind of one-to-one Greek to English. Acts 3.16, and on the faith of his name, this one whom you see and have known, his name made strong, even the faith that through him did give to him this perfect soundness before you all. It's, it's very, very complicated structure. The word faith starts to float around in the sentence and it's, it loses connection to a, a, a subject in the sentence such that we start to wonder whose faith are we talking about and how did it materialize. And then, before you answer that, Add to it your understanding of how the moment itself transpired. The guy's sitting there. He's saying, alms, alms, alms. And the guy gets his name called. Hey, you. Oh, what? Hey. Walk. Okay. There doesn't seem to be any moment in there in which the gospel is presented or the guy even has a chance to respond. In fact, as far as we know, he says nothing whatsoever in the course of that short moment. So it starts to beg a question about what faith are we talking about? Where did it come from? Whose is it? If we replace the pronouns... In the earlier version I just read, that literal version, and I reread that sentence again now with pronouns removed and the proper names or nouns put in their place, it makes it a little easier. Here's what it would be. And on the faith of Jesus' name, this lame man whom you see and have known, Jesus made him strong. Even the faith that through Jesus did give to the lame man this perfect soundness before you all. Still hard, but a little better. Then I found in... And I looked at a lot of different English versions to see how different people played with this. The NIV did a pretty good job. And the uh, New English translation does, I, I think, just even a little better. Here's what the New English translation says. And on the basis of faith in Jesus' name, his very name has made this man, whom you see and know, strong. The faith that is through Jesus has given him this complete health in the presence of you all. Clearly, the lame man here was healed by faith in the name of Jesus. Yet, considering the man himself never received what seems to be a gospel preaching of any kind, and never made any kind of response, it simply looks like Peter commanded him to walk in the name of Jesus. How are we to suppose that this man's faith entered into the process? Did he already have faith in Jesus? Did he know him already in some other way? And Peter just already knew that about the guy? Perhaps Jesus gave Peter the awareness ahead of time that he was to heal this man because this man had already shown faith in Jesus. That's one possible explanation. The problem with that, though, is it doesn't fit with the rendering of the Greek. The Greek doesn't allude to because of his faith or because he had faith. It talks about it in backward terms, as if the faith was making the healing, as opposed to the healing coming as a result of the faith. I think that's actually how it's intended. The NIV renders it the faith that comes through him. 
The faith that comes through Jesus, in other words, was the means of the man's healing. It's this sense that the New Testament carries throughout the New Testament letters, by the way, that faith is the conduit for God's action in the heart. Faith is the the mechanism by which God is doing the work, not the thing he responds to. The blind man in John 9 is the most classic example where the man is never even spoken to. All he knows is he had mud stuck on his eyes. And next thing you know, somebody, you know, he's, he's been sitting there calmly. And next thing you know, he's been accosted by someone putting mud on his eye and then told to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he's, he's like, all right, well, whatever. And then when he washes, he can see again. And then people start asking him, who's healed you? He says, I have no idea. I just wish I could know because I'd like to thank him. The rest of the story plays out that way. A faith that saves is faith that comes to us through Jesus. Through is the operant word. Here's what through means. The word in Greek is simply uh, dia, D-I-A, and it means because of, means because of. So use that phrase instead of through, and you'll see the full meaning of the sentence. Like the one I read you earlier from the NIV, the NIV renders it the faith that comes through him. Read it this way. The faith that is because of Jesus has given him this complete health in the presence of you all. The faith that is because of Jesus. It's on the basis of that faith that he was healed. The emphasis on the word through, which comes up over and over again, Paul particularly uses it all the time. We are saved by grace through faith. And that through here would seem to suggest that as in the way Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 say it, the gift of faith was delivered to this man so that he might be healed. And that it was in that moment as Peter declared the name of Jesus that the gift of faith arrived and this man had a faith not of his own. It was a gift. And having the faith that saves, he received healing in the name of that one who gave him the faith. Now he's praising God as a result of faith, which is what we all do. Now he is confessing Christ as a result of the faith that came to him, which is what we all do. For us, those two moments can come in such quick proximity, such close proximity that we have trouble putting the cart before the horse. But in scriptural terms, they're always clearly laid out as a faith that is delivered once and for all to the saints and then results in a life of good works to include the praises of his name that begin our confession. Another way to say it is the dead cannot raise themselves. We must be raised to new life so that when we are then new in life, we can praise him and respond to that gift. This, I think, is one example of that happening. Finally, the end of the chapter, 17 through 26. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that, it, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like, excuse me, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him, you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant 
and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now, apart from what I would call standard gospel repentance preaching, which you see Peter doing here for the benefit of those who can hear him in this moment, there's something also going on here that's different than what we might hear today, certainly. He starts with, you all did what you did to the, to the Messiah in ignorance. You didn't know better, perhaps. You didn't realize he was the Messiah. And the whole thing happened according to prophecy. But then he says a few things there in the middle that are different from what you would hear from what I would hear today. First, notice the word for repent. In verse 19, where he says, therefore, repent and return, the word repent is actually in the plural in Greek. We know how we'd say this in Texan. Y'all repent. Now, we could say that today if we're trying to appeal to a group of unbelievers. That's obvious enough. But in the way it's being done here in the Greek, it, it suggests a corporate response is expected, that the response of the group will be uniformly, all of them, to repent and agree. Secondly, he says, look at this. He says their repentance would result in the Father sending Jesus who was appointed for them. But Jesus has already been sent, hasn't he? And he's gone. In fact, in verse 21, Peter says that heaven must, must, must receive Jesus until a period of restoration of all things which God spoke about. And then finally, Peter says that Moses, among other prophets, told Israel that God would raise up a prophet from among the Jews, to whom all Jews would give heed. Not just some, but all. And that generation, and this generation rather, the one that's hearing from Peter, was the first within Israel to have the opportunity to participate in the fulfillment of that prophecy. That's the gist of what Peter has just said. So when you put all this together, Peter is preaching really two messages. He's preaching an individual message of salvation by faith. Come to know the Messiah, believe and be saved. The same message we preach today. But by addressing the crowd in plural terms and then adding all those additional promises, which today we would not expect to include in our preaching, it brings this whole appeal to a new level, to a national level. And that's the second thing we end on tonight. If the nation as a whole, every last man, woman and child in the nation of Israel repents, Peter says they will enter a time of refreshing brought about by the presence of the Lord. And we know, and I'm assuming for the most part, many of you were in the Isaiah study, you already know exactly where he's going in this. He's preaching to the nation of Israel. You missed your chance at the Messiah once. It was in your ignorance. God had it planned that way anyway. Good news is you get a second shot. Personally, you have the opportunity to be saved and received into the kingdom. Corporately, the nation still has the chance. If it would corporately repent, corporately receive the, the Messiah, it will enter into a time of refreshing, which is a reference to the Messianic kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, in which Israel is the chief nation. And, you notice, it will come in conjunction with the presence of the Lord. That means Christ returning again to earth, the second coming. It refers back to Zechariah 12, of course, to the way in which the nation of Israel receives Jesus at his second coming. A time of, of national salvation, national restoration. Peter here, as we end, is interestingly, he's... He's preaching with a view toward that end, even as he's trying to bring individuals into the faith in the near term. He's preaching to the Jew. Remember, he is a Jew. He believes that the Jewish people are the only ones to be saved at this point. He doesn't know better yet. And he's preaching to try to catch all of the people of Israel in this net so as to bring Christ back that much sooner. He's not aware yet of the timetable that he's facing, but he's coming at it with the best of intentions. And that's what we should all do.
Uh, Father, we are thankful that Sharon had uh, the opportunity to be here for the study and as well for her gift of bringing food. Father, thank you. And thank you, Lord, for our time as well in the study and for uh, the insights that you would bring us and, and perhaps some conviction as well for, for ways in which we can, we can be better in our own walk and, and participate more fully in the life of the body. Thank you, Lord, for this facility as always and a, a chance to perhaps come back in the weeks to come and continue. We do pray for that and for others to join us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.